Making predictions can be pretty risky. Maybe some of your uh, investments in the past have, uh, have proven to you that things that you were just so sure were going to take off didn't. Um, here's one of my uh, personal favorite predictions. Uh, there was a young man named Kila Kayahue, who was a, a first baseman and designated hitter in the farm system of my beloved Kansas City Royals. I was just sure back in the early 2000s that Kila Kayahue was going to be a, a great, if not good, power hitter for the Royals. You ever hear of Kila Kayahue? That should tell you how my prediction turned out right there. He was not very, he was not very good. Here are some other very famous uh, bad predictions. Thomas Watson was the chairman of the board of IBM during World War II. And, and, and so computing, computers were brand new. And here was his prediction. He predicted that the world had a market for only about five computers. <laughs> He might have been a little short on that one. King George III, in 1773, he said that his American colonies, quote, had little stomach for revolution. Oops. Uh, Marshal Ferdinand Folk, uh, he was the supreme allied commander in World War I. Airplanes were brand new. He said airplanes were interesting toys, but held little military value. Uh, my least favorite predictions are those about the timing of the rapture and the end of the world and things like that. We've been making those predictions for 2,000 years, and to my knowledge, they've all been wrong up to this point, unless I've missed something. Uh, that doesn't slow us down from, from making more. Well, predictions are really hard unless you're God. Two weeks ago, we read the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God made some predictions to King David. We call those predictions the Davidic covenant. Um, and they're predictions. Among those predictions, these aren't the most important things that were in those predictions, but here's a few things God said. God predicted to David... I will make you a great name like the names of the great men are on the earth. I'll make you as famous as anybody on earth. He also said that uh, Israel would have security within its borders because I, God said, I will give you, David, rest from your enemies. Those were predictions from God to David. What we're going to read this morning is God making good on those, specifically those parts of the promises to David. There were others. When God predicts things will happen, they happen because God is the one who makes things happen. When God predicts things, he's not going off educated guesses. And even though it scrambles our brains to think about such things, God exists outside of our time. It's like he's seen the end. And he causes things to happen. And so this morning, 
Even though there were other and even more important things than these in the promises God made to David, we'll talk about a few of them later this morning too, God's going to make good very quickly on these promises. Let's read all of 2 Samuel chapter 8. There are 18 verses in that chapter, and they read thusly. Now, after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them or struck them down. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and Check this out. He measured them with a measuring line, making them, the soldiers, lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. So in other words, he executed two-thirds of them. And the, Moab, and the, uh, the Moabites became servants to David, bringing him tribute or protection money. Verse 3, then David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and he, as he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot horses. He reserved only enough of them for 100 chariots. Verse 5, when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of them. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem from Betah and from Barotai, cities of Hadadezer. King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when King Toy, when, when Toy king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the army of Hadadezer, Hadadezer. Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet David and bless David because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and of gold and of bronze. King David also dedicated these things to the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued from Aram Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. Verse 14, David put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom he put garrisons and all the Edomites became servants to David and the Lord helped David wherever he went. So, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, kept records of all that David did, keep him accountable. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and ben ben Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief uh, ministers or ambassadors. That's our passage this morning. At first glance, it is one of those passages where you read it and go, what could possibly be in there for us today? Well, we'll see if we can find some things before we're done. As I mentioned 
In the previous chapter, chapter 7, God gave David some promises, some predictions. God's predictions are actually promises because they're going to come true. Um, And as we turn the page into chapter 8, God gets busy keeping some of those promises. God promised that David would defeat his enemies. Well, actually, he promised he would have rest from being attacked by his enemies. And God chose to fulfill those, that promise through military conquest. Now, there is no way around this fact. What we read in the first six verses is incredibly violent. If any nation, if any leader did the stuff that David did in this passage today, uh, those things would be decried as atrocities. We would call him a war criminal. And we would be right. The, well, God let David do it defense doesn't hold a thimbleful of water. But it's really tempting, or it's really easy to be pretty turned off by what David does. So before we're done, I want to give us somewhat of a framework to think about these things. The first thing is this. God has promised David that wicked men aren't going to be able to attack Israel while you're king. You are going to have peace from your enemies. God has obligated himself to keep that promise. And he decided to allow David to defeat them militarily and then remove their ability to be a threat. It's like after World War II, as, as the Allies defeat Hitler, they don't tell the Germans, you know, go ahead and keep your army, we trust you now. Right? Uh, we remove their ability to wage war of which we've never, they pretty much haven't given them back. That's a story for a different day. But um, that's what God does. Or that's what God allows. And so we get a list of these enemies David defeats, starting with the Philistines. The Philistines had been Israel's chief nemesis since the time they got into the promised land 400 or so years before this. And they are no longer a threat after this point in your Bible. They're never a threat to Israel again. Same with Moab. Um, This is not, this can't be thought of just as, well, there goes those crazy Middle Easterners again, blowing each other up. This is God keeping, keeping his promises to David. And as we try to make sense of this, we have to remember that this is part of God keeping bigger promises. This is not just senseless Middle Eastern violence, though it is violent and in some ways terrible. But this is a part of God keeping his greater promises. This is God allowing. God has obligated himself to establish David and then bring a special descendant from David. That was the bigger part of the Davidic covenant we didn't read this morning. 
He promises to, to send this special king who's going to reign forever and ever. That is Jesus, our Savior. And we have to be able to recognize him when he shows up. And part of what God does in establishing David is to help keep his promise later. So God allows terrible violence on a relative few as a part of God keeping his promise to give grace and mercy to many through the descendant of David he will bring. So God is keeping his greater promises. More later on, another reason why God may have allowed such violence. Okay, Another thing that happens in this passage that would have been extremely normal, by the way, everything we read here would have been very normal in that day and age. That doesn't excuse it, but it would have been normal. Another thing that is kind of unpalatable to the modern reader, but yet was very normal, is the amount of stuff David takes from those he defeats. The idea that there would have been very violent warfare and that the idea that to the victor goes the spoils would have been as normal as the sun coming up in the east. It's just the way the world worked. It looks very exploitative to us. You're exploiting those poor native peoples. Um, What's not normal is what David does with the spoils he takes. Pay attention to verse 11. Read it again with me. King David dedicated these articles, all the stuff he took, to the Lord, as he had done with all the silver and gold from all the nations he subdued. What did David do with all the wealth he took from those those defeated nations? He dedicated these articles to the Lord. Here's what that means. God or excuse me, David defeated those nations, took all their wealth, or a lot of it, took it back home to Jerusalem and gave it to its rightful owner, who is God, not David. David doesn't take all this stuff home so that he can roll around in it like Scrooge McDuck or something like that. David takes it home and gives it to God. Dedicating it to the Lord means... He turned this over to the Levites, the people who took care of God's stuff. This isn't mine. I didn't win the victory. I, to the victor, does go the spoils. But David understood, I'm not the victor. God is. So a generation later, when Solomon, David's son, wants to build this fantabulously extravagant temple... This is the treasury that is beginning to grow that allows that to happen because this is God's stuff, not David's. And we're seeing David actually be very obedient, though he's very violent. And here's why I say that. Back in Deuteronomy, which is written 400 years before David lived, it was the law of the land that David himself was under, God told Israel, someday you're going to want a king. Let me tell you what kind of king you're supposed to have. Deuteronomy 17, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations 
who are around me. God said, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. That's David. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Did you pay attention what David did to all those horses that he captured? He didn't take them home. You know why? God said not to. Nor, verse 17, shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. David takes much silver and gold, but not for himself. Because God said that's not the kind of king Israel is supposed to have. Beginning back in our chapter, beginning in verse 13, we read something about David's name or his reputation that I think uh, it gets translated in a way which makes it easy to misunderstand. In the New American Standard Bible, which is what we read from, from on the screen, it's what our pew Bibles are. We read this, verse 13 is translated this way. So, or in that way, David made a name for himself. And on the screen and in your pew Bible, if you're reading that translation, you'll notice that for, the words for himself are in italics. That's not for emphasis. And I didn't do that. The editors of that Bible did. Here's why. The New American Standard Bible tries to stay very literally word for word with the Hebrew. And the Hebrew literally says, David made a name. That doesn't make a lot of sense. They want to stay word for word, so they keep that. He made a name. And then they add in italics. The italics is a signal. Hey, reader, these words aren't in the Hebrew. We're adding these to try to make sense. So they just add for himself. David made a name for himself. But I don't think that's what happened in this story. See, the promise from God in chapter 7 was this. God said to David, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. So if you have a, a different translation, it, might, it probably says something like this. David became very famous. That's what happened. But David didn't make a name for himself. God made David's name great, and David would have been the first one to tell you that. David's focus was not on making a great name. David's focus was on having a good name. Do you know the difference between those two things? A lot of people get hung up wanting one more than the other. Which is your focus, having a great name or having a good name? And do you know the difference between the two? Having a good name comes from being a person of character, integrity, honesty, helping others, loving people, thinking of others in front of yourself. Having a great name is getting so other people think of you as above other folks. They're not the same thing. When David was at his best, David just focused on having a good name. God made David's name great, but that's a different, it's a different thing. I just want to throw that in there because it's so easy to focus on 
how I am thought of by other people in a way. I, I, want them, I want them to think that I'm a part of the right crowd. See, that can keep me, if I want to have a great name, that can keep me from hanging out with, loving, carrying on a certain kind of person. Because I may not be able to have a great name. But eventually I will have a good name. But make sure our focus is on having a good name in the right sense of that meaning. This chapter ends with this report about how David reigned over all of Israel. Verse 15 is the topic sentence for the rest of this. David reigned over all of Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. Or he ruled with justice and righteousness with all people. Everything else we read there is just about how he went about that. His appointments, his appointees, the people he gave jobs to, the jobs he gave them, were all just to help him reign with justice and righteousness in his government. Now when you hear uh, about a government ruling with real justice, not some perverted version of that word. Real justice and focused on actual righteousness. Does that give you a longing to be under such a government? It does me. But I always want to check myself when I have those feelings. I want to check myself in, in a couple of ways. First, I want to make sure, because I get so sick and tired of seeing uh, injustice and unrighteousness out there somewhere, in Washington, D.C., in Lincoln, in wherever. But if, if, if I am that sickened, if I am really that sickened by injustice, a lack of biblical justice and mercy and unrighteousness. If that makes me that sick out there, surely I'm not putting up with it in here. There's this really sneaky thing where I, I really want my team to win more than I want justice and righteousness. How do I tell? I'm okay with, I'm okay with righteousness, unrighteousness in here and in my purview of what I control and I'm sickened in it, I'm sickened by it out there, but I'm sort of okay with it in here. Maybe it's not the unrighteousness that I'm sick of. I want to make sure that I hunger and thirst for righteousness in here as much as I do out here. I want to make sure, like all David did, was make sure what was under his control was administered with justice and righteousness. Can't you and I do that? Maybe my biggest focus should be on seeing justice and righteousness under my purview. Maybe that should still be the main focus of my, where Christ has allowed me to reign over me and my things in my house. 
that I want to be passionate about justice and righteousness under, under me. All right, that's the story of the chapter. That's the story of how God allowed David's kingdom to come. After God promised David some amazing promises, God immediately got busy fulfilling some of those promises. He made David's name great. He allowed David to defeat all of his enemies and gave him and Israel safety and peace and security within their borders. What are we supposed to learn from this passage? First, I think we're supposed to learn, and that David was supposed to see this too, where we see that God has fulfilled some of his promises. We should see those things as guarantees that he will fulfill all of his promises. Like I've mentioned, the promises God fulfilled in today's passage were not the most important promises that God promised David. Those would come after David's death. God was going to build a house for David, a household, a royal lineage. And the the ultimate fulfillment would be in this Christ, this Messiah who would reign forever and ever. But David wouldn't see those in his lifetime. So God gives David the fulfillment of some promises like a down payment, like security, a deposit on the rest of the promises. That's what we should see as we read the scriptures and see God fulfill any of his promises. It should make us sure God will fulfill all of his promises. If God can take this little shepherd boy who was the youngest in his nobody family and make him into one of the greatest men on earth just because he promised to do so, then God can fulfill his promises that he's promised us to take us home, to actually forgive our sins. And things like that. So that's the first thing I think we take home where God has fulfilled some of his promises. See that as a guarantee that he will fulfill all of his promises. But there's something else going on in this passage that I want you to see. Excuse me for one sec. There's something else going on in here that I don't think David could have seen. I don't think the author of this book could have understood. I don't think the original audience could have understood. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises to David is Jesus Christ, Christ Messiah, that special king who's going to reign forever and ever. Well, there were many times in David's life, unbeknownst to him, that God was arranging the events of David's life to point toward his future descendant, Jesus. There were times that God made David's life look like what Jesus' life would one day look like. That's one way people recognized that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And we see it in the Gospels when people during Jesus' lifetime recognized who he was they would call him son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David, have mercy on us. That's why they called called Jesus that, because they were recognizing you are that king. 
You're the Messiah. We've talked about this in the David and Goliath story. It's not just, it's not just a cool underdog story. The, the nation of Israel had this giant they couldn't defeat and they knew they couldn't defeat it. They needed a champion to defeat this unbeatable enemy they couldn't defeat. That's what we need. We, need, we have the, this enemy of sin and death we cannot defeat. We need a champion, the son of David, to stand in our place and defeat sin and death on our behalf. After David defeats Goliath, the people of Israel have to decide what to do with the giant slayer. King Saul decided to reject David the giant slayer because he saw him as a rival. I don't want you to be king because I want me to be king. King Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best friend, decided the opposite. Man, I think it would be way better for me if you are king instead of me. And he sort of stepped off the throne of his own nation, wanting David to have that instead. That's the decision we have to make with Christ. It would be better for me if you call the shots in my life. Um, One more. We could probably do this all morning. Who said these words? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you said Jesus, you're right. If you said David, you're still right. The reason when Jesus hung on the cross and right before he died, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason he chose that wording is because a thousand years before, David wrote those words. It's another way with his dying breath, Jesus was saying, I am the son of David. We won't read it this morning, but just write down Psalm 22. It reads like it's about the crucifixion of Jesus. It was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. It was written probably 800 years before crucifixion had ever been invented as a form of punishment. Because the life of David often pointed to the great descendant, Jesus. And now that we know, because we have the New Testament, when we have the full canon of Scripture, and as we read back through the the Bible and see all of the things that God has promised about when Jesus returns to reign, right? We saw today how David's kingdom comes. Someday we're going to see thy kingdom come. And if we take the stuff we know about what the world's going to look like when Jesus returns and look back through today's chapter, we will see a lot of similarities. God ordained the right after he gives the promises of the Christ to David. God ordains the events of David's life to prefigure, to point toward what it's going to look like when Jesus, we now know, returns to earth to set up his kingdom. How God allowed David's kingdom to come prefigures or points toward how God will allow Jesus' kingdom to come. Here's, how we, here's the things we see in this chapter that will look like Jesus' return. First, Jesus' coming, when he comes again, is going to be incredibly violent. When we read the first six verses of 2 Samuel 8, 
it's hard to not be turned off, isn't it? It's hard to not read that and go, man, surely God wouldn't want His kingdom to be established so violently. Shouldn't He be fuzzier? Right? Couldn't He just talk about this? In Revelation 19, we we read about when Jesus comes to earth again. It reads like this. Jesus' best friend John was shown a vision of Jesus' second coming. And it reads this way. John said, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on, clean, uh, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us. 15, coming out of Jesus' mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. It doesn't say he will rule them with kid gloves. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, the violence perpetrated by Jesus is going to make that stuff we just read about David look like David was playing freeze tag. One reason God allowed David to be so violent, maybe is so people don't understand, God is not playing around. If you think David was violent when his kingdom came, wait till you see the son of David. Second, in this passage, we read about great wealth being taken from the nations and brought by David to Jerusalem. Jesus will do the same thing. Um, We could read multiple places in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 60 is a whole chapter about this. Uh, We could read about it in Revelation. I just did this one because it's the shortest. (laughs) Haggai, chapter 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says in just a little while, because from God's eternal perspective, it's just a vapor. It's just a blip. I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations like he's going to hold them upside down and shake them till all the change falls out of their pockets and their purses. The sea and the dry land, I'll shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, God says. All that gold, it's mine, God says. And the glory of of the new temple will be even better than the new one. We read of David collecting all that money and, and people criticize him for exploiting those native people just for gain. Now remember, David just gave it to its rightful owner, God. 
And that's exactly what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come, he's going to return, and he's going to say what's actually true. Everything on this earth, it was all mine the whole time. And the people who have survived are going to bring their best stuff and lay it at Jesus' feet because they're going to recognize this was true all along. All that stuff I collected that I thought was mine, it was always yours. So, Jesus' return will be violent. He will collect wealth and spoils from the nations, rightly so. Then third, Jesus will rule with justice and righteousness. David set up his government, and his focus was real justice and true righteousness. Isaiah chapter 32, about Jesus' millennial kingdom. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Jesus will appoint, delegate, Other servants to help him rule in righteousness and justice. Guess who that is? That's us again. We're going to get good government jobs in the millennium. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Here's what that means. All of our desires for government that is actually good and beneficial and focused on, the, on what's good for the people it rules over, all of our desires for that are going to be realized in Jesus' government. David ruled with justice and righteousness. Wait till you see King Jesus. And then finally, one more way that the coming of David's kingdom is like the coming of Jesus' kingdom. There is a preview of you in this passage. It's in this, these really obscure verses where in an obscure passage, Jesus, or David is rampaging his way through all, you know, uh, defeating and killing all these enemies until we get to verse 9 and we read this. When Tal, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to make friends with David. <laughs> you can read the rest of it. We need to learn something about Jesus that some dude named Tau, king of Hamath, learned about David. And that's this. I better make friends with this guy before his army shows up to defeat me. We do not have to be destroyed by the good king on his return. That's the last way this chapter looks like Jesus' return. It's so easy to be turned off by the violence, uh, by collecting all of the money for himself. Like, oh man, if if there's a God like that, I don't want any part of him. But we had better learn this when it comes to be my time to stand before the Lord Jesus and your time to stand before the Lord Jesus. There are really only two options. Violence from that king toward me or prior submission from me to that king. And that is it. Paul wrote in the the book of Philippians, 
chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that, the, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Boss, Master, King, to the glory of of God the Father. The question is not, will every one of us declare Jesus is the Christ, he's the King, he's the Savior, he's the Lord. The only question is, when will that happen? That can either happen because we decide to do that now by faith to recognize you are my Savior and my Lord and my King, and I want you to call the shots in my life. My life will be better now and forever for it. We can either confess that now or we will stand before him and he will force us to admit it was true all along. And there will be no doubt. But at that point, it will be too late. We will be either defeated by the King or will be welcomed as someone who is already one of his own. Even in an obscure passage of Middle Eastern warfare, the words cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord and King, and he will save you, but you must submit to him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for uh, the way your word points to Jesus Christ, points us to Jesus Christ. Father, we need him to be our champion who defeats sin and death because we cannot. And we know he won that battle by seeming to lose it, by taking our sin upon himself on the cross and being, letting the full wrath of God be poured out on him. But Father, thank you for this. If we will believe in him, then your wrath was poured out for us there. And it's not still waiting on us to be poured out on us when we stand before you. And those are our options, God that your wrath is either poured out on him or it will be poured out on me. Thank you for giving us a shelter from your wrath that is Jesus Christ. There is a way to not be defeated by you and that is to allow him to be defeated by your wrath in our place. May all of us who are here recognize, admit, submit, to call you Lord by faith to your glory and to our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up with us and we will finish our time together.